Hello, listeners. Welcome to your bonus episode of Powerlines, from Ukraine to the world. My name is Anastasia Lapatina. And I'm Jakub Parushinsky. For this week's bonus episode, we're giving you the extended version of last week's interview with Viktor Eskender. You'll remember that Bektur is a journalist and educator who co-founded Klopp, an independent news publication in Kyrgyzstan. Klopp is best known for its large-scale investigations on corruption, as well as its journalism school, which teaches political and investigative journalism to young people. We discussed topics like Russian colonialism, racism, and even how Bektur has ended up speaking fluent Ukrainian. Yeah, what was the most interesting thing that came up? I mean, even though I was coming into the interview knowing very little about Kyrgyzstan history, just the basics. I knew that I will understand how he feels and I will understand the history broadly because I'm Ukrainian and because we both have very similar colonial histories. You know, both of our territories were occupied by Russia at some point in time. It was just so sad, you know, to hear him talk about the genocide perpetrated by the Red Army and how to this day there is a debate about whether we can call it a genocide or not. I mean, these things have happened decades and decades ago. And and you'd think that when something as obviously evil as a genocide happens, we as humanity can come together and really call it what it is. But unfortunately, this is just my youthful naivete and we can't actually do that. Um, but Big Tour, Big Tour is lovely. And the story of his media outlet and just Kyrgyz youth in general is very inspiring. So I hope our listeners enjoy it. I have so many questions, but first of all, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do with your journalism and activism and the civil society work. Hello, everyone. My name is Bektur Iskander. I'm a journalist from Kyrgyzstan. I think I'm most famous for being one of the founders of a media organization called Klop, which is based in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, but also has now an office in Warsaw, Poland. I think we are most famous for our journalism school. Throughout the 16 years of our existence, we've brought up a whole new generation of journalists in Kyrgyzstan. Wow. Many of them have grown up to be really amazing investigative reporters. And uh, at some point, Klopp also started being known for our investigations of corruption and organized crime. And the most famous investigative series that we published was in 2019, when we joined our efforts with Radio Liberty Kyrgyz Service and also with OCCRP and then with Bellingcat. And together we published a series of investigations about corruption at the Kyrgyz Customs Service. But also we uncovered like the whole scheme of underground cargo empire that operated from China and then within Central Asia. That's huge. This is, uh, I guess, what we are mostly famous for. Mm-hmm. But we've done a lot of other things as well, not only with journalism, like we monitor elections and we actually managed to build like the largest election monitoring mission ever in Kyrgyzstan. We use technologies, we build technologies that make lives of journalists easier, lives of activists easier. And what's the story of Klopp? Why did you found it? Well, you know, I was lucky when I was 16, I joined an organization, a very cool organization that unfortunately does not exist anymore. It was called Children's Media Center, also based in Bishkek. It was a place where teenagers like I was, we would um, produce our own TV program and we would also publish our own magazine. That's so cool. Yeah. And you know what was really great about that organization that it was run by a woman. Her name is Galina Gaparova. She used to be like a theater playwright. And uh, she just wanted, you know, to create this space for teenagers where they can express themselves. 
And she didn't actually herself intervene into what we produced. We had two grown-up employees who would help us with editing sometimes, mm -hmm. but most of the things were actually produced by ourselves. That's where I got really interested in journalism. And we had amazing trainers. That's where I got most of my knowledge. Actually, on the premises of Children's Media Center, Klopp was born. And it was me and my very close friend, Renat. We together at some point came up with an idea that you know, we should uh, actually start something online. The thing is, there is a really interesting historical and political context behind it. Mm -hmm. And here we get, for the first time ever, we come to, you know, this interesting parallels with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2004, when Ukraine had the Orange Revolution, Renat and I, we were one of the few young people in Kyrgyzstan who were very closely following what actually is going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We were very much inspired by the processes. We were very much inspired by the will of the civil society to actually restore, you know, like the fair results of elections and, and so on. Mm -hmm. We also hated Russia. And I remember it was in November 2004, if I'm not mistaken, and we gathered friends and we actually explained to our friends, like, what exactly is going on in Ukraine, as we thought. And I remember we were like thinking, oh, probably it's not going to happen in Kyrgyzstan, something like that. You know, like, I'm not sure that we are so active. Our civil society is probably not that brave. You know, like, we're not going to do something like that. Mm -hmm. So funny that half a year later, we had a very similar revolution, which was also caused by elections, which was also sparked by, you know, people being very angry at how authorities actually organize the elections and how authorities actually made sure that through a lot of violations, people who were very close allies of the president would be elected into the parliament. Mm -hmm. And then one interesting thing happened during that revolution. Online sources suddenly became quite important, at least in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, because most of the media outlets, they were blocked. Or if we're talking about newspapers, they were actually not allowed to print their newspapers, you know, mm -hmm. if they were considered opposition, let's say, newspapers. TV channels were not broadcasting anything that was worth, you know, watching. And then suddenly, just a random blog of one young woman from Bishkek became like the main source of information for everybody. She was so brave. She was not even a journalist. I think she used to be a coder or something. And she was just curious about the protests that started in Bishkek. And she just went with a camera wow. and she just started photographing everything that was going on. That's amazing. And then every evening she would return home and she would start publishing basically her impressions of what has happened uh -huh. with photographs, with a lot of photographs. And then people flooded in, you know, like onto this uh, live journal. It was still live journal. Oh my goodness. I even forgot that it existed. I was like four years old or something, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And, and then this woman, she actually started on the day of the revolution itself, when we had clashes with the police, when the president was forced to flee the country. Mm -hmm. She started something that had never been done before. She started like live text updates of what's going on. Yeah, it's a very typical thing to happen during the revolutions. The same happened during Maidan. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting how revolutions, they they become a reason for a very sudden progress in communications. My input into that revolution sort of was that I became a part of the team of volunteers who helped her to gather information. Because suddenly, you know, her blog turned into like a small media outlet. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there was a team working on it. Suddenly there was a team kind of gathering information from different parts of the country. It was very inspiring. It is kind of 
like a legendary story within Kyrgyzstan. Oh, wow. It is considered to be the story that gave birth to, you know, the power of online media in Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. And that inspired us to open Klopp because we thought, okay, this so-called classic media, they failed catastrophically. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it was us, you know, this young power kind of, we were very young back then. I was like 20 or something that we should be the ones, you know, who would lead this revolution of how people get information. That was the foundation of, you know, our idea behind founding Klopp. And we founded it in 2007, still alive and kicking, despite all the pressure from authorities that we've been experiencing from time to time. That's a fascinating story. It is very inspiring that just one person with a phone or a computer and a will to do a good thing can actually spark so many changes. You mentioned that you hate Russia, which I'm not surprised by. But when I was preparing for this interview and I was just reading up on Kyrgyzstan, the two basic Google searches that would come up anytime I would Google anything about the country was, is Kyrgyzstan a part of Russia and is Kyrgyzstan controlled by Russia? So what is the the context and sort of like the basic history of the relationship between the two countries? And, and why do you hate Russia? Actually, the fact that these results are coming like... As top results when you search for Kyrgyzstan is one of the reasons I really hate, you know, the Russian colonialism. But anyway, some actually elements of the story would be very familiar to many Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. We were occupied by Russia in the 19th century. Well, colonized. I mean, it's interesting that these terms were not even used for such a long time, you know, because... I think it's occupied both the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. Exactly. But I also love, you know, the fact that people started using the term colonization as well very frequently during the last several years. Because again, Russian Empire, you know, Soviet Union and Russia today, it's the only kind of colonial empire that still has not admitted that it was the one. Mm -hmm. They keep on promoting this narrative that, oh, you know, like you were savage people and we kind of developed you. We built you factories and whatever. It's a typical colonial narrative, though. Exactly. And then they killed so many people in Kyrgyzstan. And then they made everything to make Kyrgyz language not an important kind of language anymore. You know, they russified our capital and so on. Mm -hmm. But coming back to the 19th century and to the early 20th century, it's interesting, again, to see how some events in the history repeat themselves, sort of, in a way. So what Russia did when Russia occupied Central Asia It was a long process. It started in 1850s, I guess. And then it lasted for the next 20 years or so, because it's a huge territory, you know. Mm -hmm. They actually made use of Kyrgyz and Kazakh people being divided into many, many tribes. And because, you know, we didn't have like a statehood in a European understanding of what statehood is. Mm -hmm. Like Kyrgyz people were a union of many tribes, dozens of tribes who were not limiting themselves to any political borders or something because we were nomads, you know, we didn't need borders. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We would just hang out on one mountain and then, you know... Go to another one. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's that's how things were. And Kazakhs the same. <laughs> they just preferred, you know, step instead of mountain, <laughs> which I'm not judging, you know. I think mountains are better. Is this some sort of like... Local rivalry. Yeah, is this some sort yes, of local it exists. rivalry? It exists. I mean, I, I, we love Kazakhs. Of course, we love each other like... I mean, we are, you know, like the closest uh, nations to each other you can imagine. Kazakh and Kyrgyz language are like similar as, I don't know, Ukrainian and Belarusian, which basically means that we can understand each other, you know. 
But we have, you know, this local rivalry from time to time. We think that Kazakhs are rich and not free, and they think that we are poor <laughs> and, well, sort of free. <laughs> anyway, I mean, okay, I will not use this podcast to spread, you know, stereotypes about us. We are cool and amazing. This is amazing analytical stuff. Anyway, yeah, so... <laughs> So yeah, they started with Kazakhstan. The Kazakhstan is so huge. Oh my God, it took them a long time to finally capture it. They occupied the whole Central Asia. And then in 1916, there was this famous Central Asian revolt against Russia. Mm-hmm. It was caused you know, by Russia trying to mobilize indigenous people of Central Asia to fight in the First World War. Well, nothing changes in their tactics. Exactly, you know. And we were like, what do you want us to do to fight Austria-Hungary? Like, we don't care about Austria-Hungary, really. Like, I mean, we, I'm, I'm not sure we knew where is that, actually. No, why, why do we have to fight them, Austrians? Like, we don't care about Austrians. You know? So basically, people in Central Asia started a revolt against Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. It was the first, like, serious, like, huge revolt against Russian Empire, which ended up with Russian soldiers basically coming and killing us, you know. And again, nothing new. No. Unfortunately, it's still not known how many exactly people were murdered by Russian soldiers back then because there is very, very small amount of data available. Mm-hmm. Estimates suggest that something between 100,000 and 250,000 people were killed. It's terrifying just to think. It is. And then those who were not killed, they were forced to flee to China. And the scale of that, we call it genocide in Kyrgyzstan. Of course, you know, the term genocide is being manipulated so much by so many different nations. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, legally, it has never been acknowledged as a genocide by anybody, but that's how we call it in Kyrgyzstan. Did the Kyrgyz authorities, did they acknowledge that it's going to designate it as a genocide? No, (laughs) no. This is an interesting question, by the way. I think because of ties with Russia. At the same time, they acknowledge that something you know horrible happened. We have the Kyrgyz word for that, Urkun. Basically, it means like exodus. And the scale of it was so huge that it's hard to find a family in Kyrgyzstan, indigenous Central Asian ethnicity family, let's say, that does not have at least one person from the extended family who was not affected by that. We were granted the status of republic eventually. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it could, you know, revive all the people who were killed, I would probably be thankful for that. But of course it didn't. You know. What was the Soviet time like? There were many terrible things that the Soviet Union did during that time. This whole campaign of um, Roskurkulyvanya, it's basically taking people's property, you know, mm-hmm. and killing the ones who were not ready you know, to give it away. With Kyrgyz people, they did not just take away the property. They actually forced people to change their lifestyle. So as I said, we had been nomads, you know, and we were comfortable with that. We had this really interesting relationship within Central Asia between different ethnic groups, which worked really well. So like Uzbeks and Tajiks, they were mostly settled people. They lived in towns mm-hmm. and they had a lot of agriculture. Kyrgyz and Kazakhs were nomads and we would mostly uh, deal with animals and we would then exchange. Every season, Kyrgyz and Kazakhs would come down from high altitude mountain valleys and uh, exchange, you know, meat uh, for vegetables or fruits or crops or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then when Bolsheviks came to power, they forced Kyrgyz and Kazakh people to stop being nomads. Because, you know, they were like, oh, you have so much livestock. Like, why the hell do you have it? You should give it, you know, to the Soviet state. <laughs> yeah, of course. You will now live in a fucking coal house, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, 
and we will call that civilized. Yeah, exactly. That's how they sort of civilized us. I once wrote a thread on Twitter where I basically explained why in Russian language you should say Kyrgyzstan instead of Kyrgyzia, because Kyrgyzia is a colonial name of our country, which is basically just Russians not being able to pronounce Kyrgyzstan. So I wrote the whole thread about it. I received a lot of support in replies, but then it became sort of viral. And then, and then you know, many Russian trolls came in <laughs> and started replying. As they do. The problem is many of them were not actually like trolls in terms of like bots. They were actual people, you know, who actually think this way. And uh, suddenly I started getting a lot of racist replies. That's terrible. Usually, you know, revolving around the topic of migrant workers, because there are many, many Kyrgyz migrant workers in Russia, unfortunately. And people started replying me with words, something like, thank you, can I get two shawarmas, please? Or something like, excuse us, we didn't receive like food delivery. What? That is disgusting. <laughs> yeah. And then one person wrote something like, you should be thankful because we taught you how to wipe your asses. I replied to him like, excuse me, we washed our asses before you. you know? <laughs> Most of us were Muslim. We care about hygiene. So this kind of colonial outlook is continuing to this day, huh? Exactly, does. Absolutely. Unfortunately, this colonialism, it just never disappeared anywhere. Mm -hmm. I recently was analyzing, you know, like what was happening in 1991, for example, in 92, you know, the period which is praised by so many Russian liberals, so-called liberals. I recently watched a video from Crimea that was dated like 1992 or something. And, and then in Russia, people would react to that, that, you know, Crimea should return to Russia, whatever. That was in 92. Yes, exactly. They started this narrative about Crimea even back then, even in movies like Brat 2, you know, for God's sake. They they also have the Crimea joke there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Transnistria story, it, it was in 92 or something. Tajikistan Civil War, which started in 92, current president, Emomoli Rahman, he was supported by Russia in that war, you know. Mm -hmm. Abkhazia and Chechnya, of course, you know. Of course. I mean, there were so many signs that the colonialism has not gone anywhere. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Somehow the whole world just was not giving enough attention to that. Yeah, no one no one cared. And I think to this day, few people care about the history of Russian colonialism in Central Asia and about the history of all of the very diverse, interesting and rich with history places which have become a part of the Russian Federation, right? The republics. People see Russia as this monolithic big thing. And they completely brush off the fact that it has so much history and so much different culture. And unfortunately, the majority of this history is the history of oppression. Absolutely. So I have one final question. How come you speak Ukrainian? I was fascinated by Ukraine since I was a kid. I'm not joking. And then I started traveling to Ukraine a lot from 2010. Actually, my first city was Donetsk. <laughs> That's insane. I was an election observer in Donetsk in 2010 when Yanukovych was elected. Really? So that was my introduction to Ukraine. <laughs> That's incredible. Isn't it great, actually? And it just happened somehow that I've been witnessing the most important historical moments in Ukraine. I witnessed Euromaidan. I witnessed the beginning of the war in 2014. I was in Donetsk in May 14 again. And then I traveled to the front line three more times, actually. That's incredible. Anyway, I spent a lot of time in Lviv, mm -hmm. where I was quite often a guest lecturer at the Ukrainian Catholic University. They have an amazing journalism school. And then we actually even did a joint project together, Klopp and Uku. We organized like videography workshops for young people from Central Asia, Caucasus and Ukraine. 
it was my attempt, you know, to strengthen the post-colonial solidarity, that's how I call it, between civil societies and activists of our countries, because I believe that we really should cooperate, you know, we have so many common threats and everything. Mm -hmm. And then I would come to Lviv, and what language should I use in Lviv when I talk to students? For the first, like, three or four years or so, I would give all my public talks in Lviv in Russian. <laughs> how how strange is that, isn't it? That uh, That is a bit strange now. But not so many students actually spoke English well enough to understand me. So we needed to find some language that everybody would kind of understand, you know. So Russian was unfortunately the only choice available for many occasions. That's the shared colonial past. Exactly. But then, you know, on the other hand, it totally ruined, you know, the Russian narrative that I'm going to be like, I don't know, like killed in Lviv immediately for speaking Russian. Of course, it never happened. Of course, that's not true. Nobody ever told me anything for it. Yeah. But then I was really curious about, can I actually learn Ukrainian? And then at some point I started talking just a little bit. It was very slow and awkward, but uh, it was getting better and better. And today I'm totally capable of even giving public talks in Ukrainian. That's amazing. It's not perfect, of course, but I try my best. You know, like I, I really enjoy speaking Ukrainian, actually. Well, then, since you can speak Ukrainian, I'll say thank you in Ukrainian. Thank you so much for coming. It was it was really interesting to listen to you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to Power Lines. Next week, we'll be speaking to the writer and investigative journalist Oliver Bullo about the rise and impact of oligarchies. Power Lines is a partnership between the Kyiv Independent and Message Heard. It was produced by B. Duncan, Harry Stott, and Talia Augustidis. The executive producer is Sandra Ferrari. The theme music is by Tom Biddle and Alfie Godfrey. 